Uh, I'm going to do our reading today, and it is from Matthew 24, chapter 24, that is, verses 36 to 44, but I think it comes up here as well. Okay, off you trot. Um, and not that I'd recommend exiting before the scripture is read, which I'm sure is going to be deeply significant, <laughs> but yeah. Um, right, so 30, verse 36, this little um, passage is called The Day and Hour Unknown. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house to be broken into. So also you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit you caused all scripture to be written that we might be built up in our relationship with you. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak your word afresh through me and into our ears, our minds, our hearts, our very souls, that we may be made the people you want us to be. Amen. Well, that's a cheery old Christmas message and no mistake, isn't it? We are all ready for jollity and Father Christmases and reindeer and heaven knows what else and one will be taken and the other left. Why is it in the lectionary for Advent Sunday, the start of our festivities? The answer is this. The lectionary compilers were sadly aware how easily people patronise Christmas. There's the sweet baby, friendly donkeys, cuddly lambs, Rustic shepherds going, ooh, ah. Kings dressed in splendid robes. I mean, you know, what's not to like? So we say, oh, it's good, the season isn't that nice. Oh, I always enjoy Christmas. But Psalm 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we have the beginning of the Christmas season. Start with the fear of the Lord. There is no point whatever in people making a fuss about the arrival of this baby unless we recognise just who he is and why he came. To make sense of this very specific event in time, we need to be able to set it in the context of eternity. So right from the start, the lectionary compilers want to set his first coming in the context of what he grew up to say about his second coming. The first time round... He came in complete weakness and vulnerability as a human baby. 
Indeed, rather greater vulnerability than most human babies, away from the parent's home, not even in a proper bed, but in a barn, subject to menace from a murderous king. But next time, he says, his arrival will be on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's the passage immediately before our gospel reading today. As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's as different as can be from his first coming. And it's also as different as can be the reaction of people when he does. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, says verse 30. They will see the Son of Man coming. That's very different from the rather patronising attitude many adopt to the season we're just entering. But why should everyone mourn as Jesus returns? Well, do you remember, some of us rather longer ago than other some, being sent to wait outside the head teacher's study for some misdemeanour? No, you're all so good, weren't you? It happened to me regularly. Um, or perhaps being called to a disciplinary hearing at work for something you've got wrong? What about being arraigned before the magistrates for a motoring offence? What must it be like to be indicted at the Crown Court on a charge of capital murder? Take all of those together, multiply them by a million, and Revelation 20 paints the picture for us. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. So there we are, and the charge is read out. Prisoner at the bar, you are charged with high treason in that through your life on multiple occasions you did willfully and negligently fail to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? And the second count of this indictment is, again, of high treason, in that throughout your life you did willfully, maliciously, and negligently disobey the command of the King of Kings that you love your neighbour as yourself. Prisoner at the bar, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Now, there are a number of ways that humanity may try to respond to these charges. Some deny the jurisdiction of the court altogether, which is all very fine and large until one finds oneself actually standing in front of it. Some claim, oh, but I never knew. And the answer to that is the well-established legal principle, ignorantia legis non excusat, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Many may argue, well, I did my best. Well, did you? Did you really? When all the time God was reaching out his hands to help you to live the life he wanted you to live, 
but you persisted in doing things your own way? Romans 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Denial of that fact only serves to compound your guilt. So either we put up our hands and plead guilty, or the inevitable verdict is handed down. Guilty as charged. And then all we have to wait for is the sentencing. The dread judge reads out from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 18 verse 4, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. From the New Testament, Romans 6 verse 23, The wages of sin is death, eternal exclusion from the Lord of life and light and love. And the judge reaches out for the black cap. But wait. Next to the king, next to the judge, is a human being just like us. And he says, I plead for a stay of execution and a reversal of this verdict on the grounds of double jeopardy. No one may be executed twice for the same offence. And there are those here among the accused whose penalty has already been paid, for they have united their lives with mine, and I have paid the penalty for all their sin. I claim them as my jewels in accordance with Malachi 3.17. They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them. Their names are written in my book of life. And the Son of Man goes down among the assembled crowds of the condemned, and he puts his hand first on this one, and then that, and then this one. And he says, this one's mine? Oh yes, I recognize her. Yes, and that one. And he resumes his place on the throne. And the judge declares, Not guilty. And the Son of Man cries out, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And like Joseph, we are whisked from prison straight into the throne room. In eternal terms, there are only two sorts of person. Those who are united with Jesus Christ and those who are not. And we may all look very similar, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, working alongside one another in whatever field of service it may be, getting on with the hard grind next to one another. But some belong to Jesus and some do not. And it isn't a question of this one being really kind and helpful while the other one is a bit of an awkward cuss. No one is good enough for God. Romans 3 verses 10 to 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not 
even one. Heaven is perfect. None of us make the grade. So nobody qualifies for heaven by our own efforts. But Jesus makes that same offer to every person under heaven. Will you let me be born in you? Live in you? Die for you? And conquer death for you? No one knows when that fateful moment of judgment is going to come. But we have heard his gracious invitation. We cannot afford to relegate it to the less important things of life, can we? What happens if we turn out to be like the rich man of whom Jesus said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The lectionary compilers want us to go into the Christmas season knowing just how deadly serious the choice is. Are you accepting his offer to enter your life gently and in tenderness and humility as a baby developing into divine maturity in you? Rather than waiting to have to bow the knee before him in his terrible majesty. Will you, united with Jesus, in the words of the Advent Collect, cast away the works of darkness and put on the armour of light now in the time of this mortal life? Because if you have, and if you do, then you can have absolute confidence in him for eternity that on the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead you will rise to the life immortal through him who is alive and reigns with the father in the unity of the holy spirit one god now and forever amen